Really glad you're here today. Um, we're in a series called Love Your Neighborhood, as you've probably seen all over the place here. And uh, my name is Justin, if you didn't know, and, and it's, it's really good to have you here. A, a few years ago, uh, we're on a family vacation back before we had two kids and could actually go on a vacation without it being awful. And uh, we only had a baby at that point. And we went to a Tybee Island. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Near Savannah, Georgia. Love that spot. And we decided one day, the grandparents were there, they were watching the baby, so it was me and my wife and my brother and, her, and sister-in-law, and we're going to go out and do something fun. So we decided to go kayaking, because I love to kayak, and we decided we were going to go out and do like an ocean kayak. There was a big bay around there, you can go out into the bay, and there is a, a, this old 100-year-old lighthouse on this tiny island, you can see a picture of it here that you can kayak to, and it's pretty far out there. So we're having this wonderful, leisurely, tandem kayak trip out to this island and going a little bit far, and climbed up in there, and it was just beautiful. You could see fish kind of swimming beside you and whatnot, and we spent a good deal of time there. It was wonderful. And then we turned around and started going back. Now, I've never kayaked in the ocean before. I did not know how strong a tide is. I don't know if you've ever actually tried to swim or to kayak against tide, but we turned around, and as soon as we're heading back to where we were supposed to go, it was uh, more than just a little bit difficult. And by difficult, I mean like all of the cuss words and like, I'm about to die. Is this going to be... I'm the tourist that gets lost at sea at the kayak that's going to be all over the evening news. This is going to be that. My brother and sister-in-law, they'd only been married for, uh, for about a year at that point, and I thought it was for sure going to be divorce after that because was, there were was some words that I can't say. They're not here today, so I can say that about them. Um, but that, it was absolutely awful. Going back, it took twice as long. It was this leisurely thing. I mean, like the water was just carrying us along, and on the way back, we enjoyed nothing at all. No beauty. There was no beauty anywhere because it was so difficult to get back to dry ground. And when we got back, no one spoke. It was one of those like ride home and don't say a word to one another sort of situations because we were so tired from fighting the tide this entire time. And I I think about that day a lot because I think about how a lot of times when I've, uh, I've looked back on my own faith journey, like it began with this very easy sort of going with the water and, and it seems so beautiful and so wonderful and I'm visiting all these wonderful places spiritually and I get to this place where all of a sudden it feels as if my life is fighting against the tide. It feels as if the calm waters are gone and I'm now in a season where everything is fighting against me, where, where all of, all of the, the circumstances in my life, all of the things that I see around me seem to be pushing against me, having faith. I, I might be looking at the culture around me. I might be looking at the disheartening news that I see on the TV screen every day, and it just feel like as, as much as I'm trying to put my faith in Jesus and walk in his ways, there's so much pushing against me, and I'm getting angry, and I'm getting tired, and I'm getting cynical, and I'm getting scared. Anybody ever feel that way? Good, I'm not alone. I'm not the only pagan in the room. That's good. Well, I, I, I feel that a lot. Um, I feel that push against faith. And, and that's something that, that, that we 
typically want to avoid and get out of, but we, we need to realize that those moments that we are in these battles are actually some of the most formative moments of our life. They were some of the most amazing moments where God begins to shape us into who we are. And there's no greater experience of this, I found in the scriptures, than, than the story of, of the Israelites when they're going into um, they're going into exile in Babylon. There's this prophet, and his name is Jeremiah, and in the year 587 BC, the, the Babylonians, which was kind of like the America at the time, big giant empire, they come and they take over uh, Jerusalem. They take over the entire country and they take most of the, the, the folks back with them. They take them back, back and bring them back into Babylon and bring them into exile. And it's a horrible, horrible situation for the Jews. They, they left some folks behind, but they tore down the temple. They destroyed the city. And so here's all of Israel in this foreign land with foreign gods, with foreign cultures that doesn't eat like me, that doesn't look like me, that doesn't talk like me. And worst of all, if I've only known my identity by two things, number one, this is the land, the promised land that God gave me, Israel. And now I'm not there anymore. And not only that, God's presence is in the temple. We just know that. That's where he was. We go and visit him there. So, so now the temple is destroyed. If the temple is destroyed and if, if the land is no longer where I am, then, then really, who am I? Who am I anymore? I've, I've lost all sense of identity. I've lost all sense of purpose. And I either have a choice to try to fight and to get my way back to Jerusalem and, and, and just try to settle back in, or I can just assimilate into this larger, more powerful culture and completely lose who I am. So here they are, many, 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 many miles away from home with no temple, with no promised land, with a struggling sense of identity and who they actually were, and they're wondering, where is God in this? Where is God? They start reaching out to prophets and saying, prophets, how can you tell us what the voice of God is in this worst moments of our history? And, and a prophet comes along, he comes along in Jeremiah 28, his name's Hananiah. And Hananiah comes and says, thus saith the Lord, don't get comfortable because you're going to be out of here in two years. And of course, everybody's like, yes, okay, I can handle that. We can handle two years in exile and, and people are celebrating. They like Hananiah, just like we love when religious people come and tell us what we want to hear, you know what I'm talking about? Like we love those kind of people because they write the good books that are on the bestseller list. They, they're the ones that are really drawing the crowds. And Hananiah really could have drawn a crowd because he says, you know what? This is not God's will for you to be in this situation. And you're going to be out in two years and everyone yells and screams and says, yes, God. And then Jeremiah comes along and ruins everything because he says, no, that's not God. That's not the voice of God. He's actually in Jerusalem, and he writes this letter to the exiles from Jerusalem. And this is the words of prophecy from the Lord to these folks who are in this foreign land in exile. He says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. 
Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams. You you encourage them to have They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, chances are you've probably heard that last verse. Uh, You've maybe had it on a coffee cup or you have it on your bumper sticker on the back of your car. Uh, We've Americanized this verse so remarkably out of context that basically we've come to believe when we hear Jeremiah 29, 11, that I know the plans I have for you and it's to make all your wildest dreams come true. It's to make the American dream happen. And... God is actually saying in this context, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, 70 years in exile. Like, I have a plan for you, and it is, there's hope and there's prosperity ahead, but it's not out of this circumstance that you're actually in. It's actually within it that I am going to bring that peace and prosperity. You may not know what exile feels like, or maybe you do know what exile feels like. It's this feeling of being dislocated from from a place of comfort or stability or identity. You ever just feel unsettled? You know what I'm talking about? Just feel like you're in a season of life where nothing feels like home. Internally, externally, you don't feel like you're where you should be, like you've been there before, but, but life, for whatever reason, has taken you out of that feeling of stability and comfort and has left you unsettled. You feel discontent. You feel like you are not where you've always really longed to be. And so what happens is, is you develop this deep, deep ache and unsettledness, this unshakable sense that I know that this is not the world I was created for. I know probably many of you have felt that before. Maybe you're feeling that right now, that I don't feel as if I am in the place that God has created me to be in And it's directly in that unsettledness, directly in that discontent that God comes along and speaks over them and speaks over us. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And that hope and future is not escaping this reality. This hope and this future is actually right in the middle of the exile. Right in the middle of your unsettledness, right in the middle of your discontent is where I am going to bring you hope. That's exile. 
Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, exile forces a decision. Will I focus my attention on what's wrong with the world and feel sorry for myself? Or will I focus my energies on how I can live at my best in this place I find myself? Ouch. So how do we do that? God tells us that that Jeremiah is is calling us to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. That that word for peace and prosperity in English, we don't even have a word that can fit all of that in there. That's one Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is a huge, huge concept in the scriptures. It's the word shalom. It means more than just peace. It means more than just the absence of conflict or the absence of things going wrong. Shalom means wholeness. Shalom is bigger than just things aren't feeling bad. It's everything being put to right again. This is again how Eugene Peterson describes shalom. He says shalom means wholeness, the dynamic, vibrant, vibrating health of a society that pulses with divinely directed purpose and surges with life transforming love. It's the way the world has always meant to be. Shalom is how we were created in the beginning when we lived with God in the Garden of Eden. And at the end of the scriptures, we see it again. As we live in the city of God with God, we have shalom. We have wholeness, physical, mental, spiritual, social, all of life wholeness. And so that ache that you feel, that unsettledness, that discontent, you may not know this, but that is a longing for shalom. That's a longing for a wholeness, for a completeness that you know you're created for. And you know you're just not there yet. That's that ache as you turn on the news or as you see the circumstances in your family or you see your your own sufferings right now. When you feel that ache that says this is not the way it should be, that's the longing for shalom. That's what you feel when you go to the funeral and you hear something as stupid as death is a natural part of life. That's stupid. Death is not supposed to be a natural part of life. Death was never meant to be a natural part of life. You go to a funeral and you feel the ache because you know that this death in this moment, we were not created for a death like this. We were created for life. We were created for wholeness and shalom. And so you feel that ache that this just isn't the way it should be. We embrace that ache. Because that ache actually leads us somewhere. Because Jeremiah tells us here in verse 7, he says, Seek the Shalom, the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it shaloms, if it prospers, you too will shalom. This is pretty phenomenal. Jeremiah is is tying our peace and wholeness to the peace and the wholeness of the city that he's put us in. Think about that. That, that for us in Lexington or Richmond or Nicholasville, wherever you're coming from, that, that wherever God has placed you, that the shalom, the wholeness, the peace of that city, your own prosperity, your own wholeness and peace is tied up with the city that God has put 
you in. And it's by seeking that city, by seeking your neighborhood, by seeking your school, by seeking shalom wholeness in the city that God has placed you, that you actually, in and of yourself, find that same peace and wholeness and shalom. Our, our mission statement is, is we believe Jesus is restoring people who restore the world, restoring people who restore the world. We're restoring back into wholeness, back into shalom. So it's in that process of us living out our mission that we are actually finding that same restoration. And God gives us a strategy for this, a strategy for shalom. And it's not the strategy, honestly, I would expect from God. Because what does he tell him? He says, build houses, plant gardens, and start families. That's God's shalom strategy. Build houses, plant gardens, and start families. No picket signs, no, no insurrections, no like, let's take back Jerusalem for God crusades. Build houses, plant gardens, and start families. There's something about these three things, these houses and the gardens and the families that they have in common. All three of those things there, they require you to put down roots and be present. Think about it. Houses and gardens and families, they require consistency, they require intentionality, and they require us to say, I am in this for the long haul. None of those things can grow None of them can grow without us consciously cultivating intentionally consistency, life in them. We just actually moved into a new house. And this new house, thankfully, the owner before us had a wonderful garden in the back. And it makes me feel like I'm really good at it, but they're already growing. But what I've noticed, and if I have kids too and a wife, and, and if, if I leave the garden on its own, it, we did for like a week. And it's like, it's gone all to heck. It's, it's, it's like crazy. And then, you know, if we leave our kids on their own, I mean, most of you've met my kids, you know, that's dangerous. That's horrible. Or, you know, if you leave your house, our house ends up getting messy. It ends up falling apart. Things begin to break. Everything that God is describing here are things that require us to slow down, to be rooted and to be intentional and to simply be present. Because I cannot seek a shalom, I cannot seek a peace and a wholeness without being present, without being here and not somewhere else. There's a ton of things that are fighting against this, friends. There's tons of stuff that are, that's fighting against us being present and seeking shalom. The, for the Jews, the temptation was on one side to, to constantly be daydreaming and thinking about how we're going to get back to Jerusalem. And, and those were the good old days when things were good back then. And, and I, I just want to escape these circumstances. I want to have my mind on Jerusalem. And it's like as Oliver Wendell Holmes used to say that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. You know anybody like that? Don't say it out loud. They're probably in here. Don't say that. But the Jews were so Jerusalem-minded that they were no Babylonian good. That they were so focused on what they could have gotten back to or, or getting back to the way it used to be that they were always tempted to just lose sight and never really settle into where they were and be present to seek shalom. That was one of the temptations on one side. The other temptation on the other side for the Jews and for us as well 
is just settling in and allowing ourselves to go with the flow. Just to, you know, Yahweh can just become one of the many other Babylonian gods and we can kind of settle into the beliefs and the practices of the culture and and we just fade into being comfortable. We seek the status quo. We don't try to ruffle any feathers. We we immerse ourselves in in, in the the, the false gods and the, 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 the cultural moments around us and then we just absolutely lose anything that makes us distinct whatsoever. This is a temptation for us as well as as we can simply immerse ourselves so much in our own American culture that, that the distinction of what makes us actually Christian is lost. And the line between what is American and what is Christian gets very, very blurred. Or maybe we just settle into to culture and we settle into to, to just being immersed in Netflix and entertainment and life. And we just begin to lose what makes us who we are. We're just like everybody else. And the Jews were supposed to be distinct. They were called to be the light of the world, light to the world around them. And they weren't many times. But in exile, this was their opportunity. The same is true for us. See, the church, we're we're called to be a counterculture for the common good. We're called to be different for a difference. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying we're supposed to be counterculture means anti-culture. We are not anti-culture because we're for the common good. We're for the good of everyone, but we're for the good of everyone in a way that because we are distinct, we are not like everyone for the good of everyone around us. And I'm also not saying that we are countercultural in the sense that we are morally superior or better than other people as well. We are not. Just look at the news. We're terrible. (laughs) We're not morally superior at all, but we're called to be different for the sake of making a difference. Those are the two temptations. To either have our mind so far away from where we actually are, or to settle in and just go with the flow and not really remember who we are anymore. Both are enemies of us being present and seeking shalom. But there is another way. There's the way of Jesus. There's the way of Jesus in the midst of our exile that brings us into a different way of life. In John 1.14, in the message, it says, The Word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and blood, and He moved into the neighborhood. I love that. He moved into the neighborhood. We understand God. He did not send us a book. He did not send us a strategy. He did not send us an idea. He did not send us a religion. He sent us a person. He sent us God in flesh. Jesus is what God longs to say to the world. Jesus, I'm going to say that again. Jesus is what God wants to say to the world. It's what he's longing to say to the world. And in Jesus, we learn that the heart of God for all of us, for every single one of us, friends, is this, is that God is with us and God is for us. He took on flesh and blood. He suffered in every way that we were. He was tempted in every way we were. He died in our place. He rose again for us. All of this, all of his story, all of the scripture story, all to tell us, you and me, 
that God is with us and that God is for us. So what's this have to do with loving our neighbors and loving our neighborhoods? We do this by becoming the embodiment of that message that God is with us and God is for us. See, every week you're going to walk by this table outside or you're going to hear an announcement about things we're doing around here, like Pampering Pathways, which is providing diaper bags and, and baby showers for these moms who are coming out of addiction at the Polk Dalton Clinic. All of that, every single shower gift, every single uh, backpack is all screaming, God is with you and God is for you. The care packages for Revive House to these these brave men who are taking these steps, again, out of addiction, saying to them, God is with you and God is for you. The stuff we're doing for Arbor, for the the kids coming out of homelessness and the teenagers transitioning out of that, the care packages we're providing for them, they're not just gifts. They're our way of saying to them that God is with you and God is for you. The hundreds and maybe even thousands of kids' families Faces that we have painted over the last two years, every single child with that paint on their face, us saying to them, God is with you and God is for you. And that's love. That is what love is defined as I am with you and I am for you. And that's the kind of love that brings shalom. That kind of love is the engine of shalom wholeness that we're called to bring. So here in this East End neighborhood and the people around us here that we've been called to here as we're in the Lyric Theater, everything we want to do, every cup of coffee, every song, every sermon, every handshake, every program, everything we do, we want it to scream to our city, to our neighborhood. God is with you and God is for you. Notice it's not just that God is with you because if God is with me and God is angry at me, I'm not real happy about God being with me. A lot of us are really excited to say God is with me, but, but there's another step. There's a, there's a reality to believe that not only is he with me, but this God, his character is love. And he is for me. And so it's good news that God is with me And it's even better news that he's for me. That's our dream. It's not just to build a great church. It's to build a great city. A city where people know that God is with them and that God is for them. Some of you all know our journey of ministry in this area. Through through various ups and downs over the last few years, Um, And and we began five years ago, March of 2013, as a missional community in downtown Lexington. And and so as we started, I just have always in my spirit, I mean, ever since I was little, my dad worked downtown here, he worked down the street down here, and I've always been called to downtown Lexington. Even before I was really called to ministry, I just loved this place. And I didn't really know why. Back before, there was all the hipsters and cool things here too. Um, like, Like really, I've always just been drawn for whatever reason. And, and so as, as we started out this journey of ministering to this area, this East End neighborhood and no lie and, and, and everything, I began to go out and to meet people in the neighborhood and just try to pick people's brains about what I was getting myself into. And I met with this one leader from the area, um, this, this older man, and he'd been around this area for a long time. And we had coffee together. And he, I, he said to me, young fella, that's what we call me, young fella which is wonderful because no one ever calls me young at all anymore. He's a young fella. 
I'm going to be straight with you. Everyone expects you to be the next group of white people who come down here for six months and feel really good about yourselves, then get tired and leave. And I just kind of sunk into my chair because I was not ready for that. He said, here's how they're going to know that you're with them. Is that you're here. No, I mean, he's like, I mean, you're here and you're still here and you stay here. And you don't go when it gets hard. You don't go when it's not easy anymore. They know when you're here because when they're here, they know you're for them. And a while back, I hadn't seen him in a long time. And, and he said, come up to me. And I didn't see him at first. He said, and he said, young fella, which is good because this is a few years later and I'm still young to him. He said, young fella, let me just tell you something. You're still here. You're still here. And he says, and people know. He said, I've talked to them. They know. They've heard about your church. They've heard about what your church does here. They know. That was like the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me as a pastor. You can say great sermon all day, or, but when I heard from that person, you are here. When they knew, I'm not just parachute dropping in missions to help you and then going back. I am here. And I'm for you. That's who we're called to be. We're called not to just come and to drop in things that make us feel good, but real love, real love that transforms neighbors and transforms neighborhoods is a love that doesn't stand at a distance, but a love that steps into the neighborhood just like Jesus did and says, I am here and I am for you. And it's no coincidence that the message of Jesus for you today Whatever place in your journey you're at, many of us who may be in the middle of a battle for your life or many of us struggling with depression or, or, or hurt or something happening right now, the same message is for you. God today, listen, hear me. God is with you. And it's even better news that today in Jesus Christ, we know that God is for you for your good. Jesus says that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. He's not here to condemn you. He's not here to say, straighten your crap out. He's here to say, right in your mess, I am here. I am for you. Let me pray into that as we move into a time of response. Jesus, I know that the when I've struggled spiritually the most are the moments that I believe bad news. I believe, God, that you are far away. And the reason you are far away is because you are mad at me. Because I just let you down one more time and I screwed it up again. And so you've run away from me and you're waiting until I can get my stuff together and then you'll inch your way back into my life and that is bad news and the good news is today for every single heartbeat in this room is that you never left you are here 
here before we got here. You're here in us. You're not running away. You're not scared by our brokenness. You're not scared by our mess. You are with us. And beautifully, amazingly today, we can trust that you are for us. And so God, as we learn to believe that, as that begins to shape us, may that same love be the love that is poured out into our neighborhood, poured out into our city, poured out to the places we live and we work. We cannot give away what we have not received. And so God, fill us up with that love here today as we respond to you in Jesus' name. We're going to enter into a time of response together. What we do in this time is, is we encourage all of us, no matter where we're at in our spiritual journey, to take a moment and to, to listen to what God might be saying to us uh, in, in this place. So we respond in a few different ways. We, we respond through communion, uh, which is we take off a piece of the bread and we dip it into the juice. The bread represents Jesus' body and the juice represents his blood. We do this every week to remind ourselves this amazing truth that God is with us and God is for us. And other way you can respond is, is we have words on the screen. If you just want to worship, you want to sing, or if you just want to sit and let that truth just kind of wash over you where you're at, um, we encourage you to pray, to, to think through what God might be speaking to you. And also there's going to be folks in the back. If, if we can pray with you about anything whatsoever, we'd love to pray for you in this time as we respond. So as we do this, why don't we go ahead and stand if you feel led to come and take communion. Let's come and take the, the elements together.